Welcome back to this week's episode of Alter Guild. I'm Matthew Ian Fleming, and I'm glad you're joining us. This season, we're talking about who we are at our core. What are the forces that shape and move us? Who are we? And what are our multifaceted identities? Gender, of course, is one of those things. Particularly in this moment in our culture, we thought it would be good to have a conversation about masculinities. Those unspoken and often unexamined scripts that tell men who they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to act. We've seen how toxic these scripts can become, how insidious the webs can reach from the tops of our corporations and institutions to the beat up chairs in the youth rooms of our churches. I sat down with two men who are working to unearth these scripts and to dismantle them in favor of more authentic and embodied lives. Austin Hartke is an educator and author who travels the country talking about gender, particularly gender identity within the LGBTQ community. His first book, Transforming the Bible in the Lives of Transgender Christians, was published this year by Westminster John Knox Press. Silas Morgan is a scholar and acquisitions editor for Fortress Press, a Lutheran publishing house based in Minneapolis. He's working on a book project chronicling masculinities in Trump's America. My conversation with Silas and Austin was wide-ranging and vulnerable. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. And a quick note that we have a couple swears this episode. Here's Austin. I think um, as somebody who works in sort of education around gender, it's uh, I, I sort of piece or I take these things apart sort of a little bit more maybe than um, than folks who don't have to think about it as much. Uh, because when we talk about gender in an education context, we talk about the differences between gender identity, which is like your internal sense and feeling of your gender, and your gender expression, which is how you show that to the world. So things like your clothing and your hair, et cetera, your movements. And then um, your uh, gender roles. And like this, those are sort of like the scripts and the, the masks that you were talking about that we can take on. The interesting thing about gender identity is that part of it seems to be sort of inborn in us, like we have our sense of gender identity that nothing can shake, but we also figure out our gender identity by looking at the gender roles, the scripts and masks that exist out there and trying to find ones that look the most uh, like us. And so um, for me, a lot of what I've been doing, like I, I recognize that I um, I feel male, I identify as male, that's sort of the inborn part, but then I have to look at all these social scripts and be like, what kind of masculinity looks right to me? Um, not right in a moral sense, but like which resonates the most with me. Um, and so what I've found is I think uh, I've learned a lot by seeing what doesn't work. <laughs> so, no, so for me, um, recognizing that there are certain situations in which I will be in like a group of guys and I feel this sort of unconscious pressure to stand in a certain way or speak in a certain way, speak lower, speak with more authority, talk about things I don't know anything about, but pretend that I do, you know, like <laughs> there's sort of this um, pressure to act in a certain way to take on those roles. And then it's only later when I go home or whatever. And I think that's not actually the kind of masculinity that is me. Like that doesn't make sense for me, you know? So yeah, I just want to tease those out a little bit. Um, when when do you think you were, became first aware of that like 
inborn uh, identity piece, um, which, you know, I, I'd, I'd maybe push back and say, is this kind of ongoing um, mm-hmm. evolution? Like, it's not this, here's your definition of identity given to you and stamped on oh, you, totally, but this yeah. like kind of amorphous thing. Mm-hmm. But um, but w- when was the first time you became aware of that, that kind of conflict between um, slipping into a... Um, uh, um, a performance of something that you don't that you don't want to be a part of. Um. <laughs> well, actually, it it uh, was sort of a reverse of that because throughout like my childhood, like I constantly felt like I was trying to perform a femininity that yeah, didn't make sense right. to me. So really, it was the performance of the yeah. femininity being yeah. like, wait, no, that's yeah. not it. Yeah. And so then once I uh, came out as trans and got to just be myself, yeah. the first time probably that I remember. Um, sort of being put into that place. It's, it's always in times of stress, I think. It's in times where you feel unsafe and, um, or for me, I, I feel unsafe where I'm, you know, walking down the street at night or whatever. That's when I just feel like I must be the most masculine so that I'm not vulnerable to people. Um, and so I think, yeah, that for me is like in times of stress or times of fear, that's when it's really easy to fall into those scripts. Yeah, I think for me, relationships clearly were the place mm-hmm. where I became aware that there were scripts in the first place, mm-hmm. right? The thing about, particularly about cisgendered masculinity, mm-hmm. is that all of those scripts are hidden. Mm-hmm. They're all latent inside of history, inside of institutions, inside of patterns that were taught without realizing mm-hmm. it. And so part of the unmasking or the naming of, of masculinities and the, all the different varieties that exist a big part of that is simply identifying that there are these patterns, mm-hmm. and these patterns have deep social effects. Mm-hmm. And one of the places where I've felt those effects the most have been both in relationships with other men mm-hmm. and also within my own family. I'm married to a woman. I have two small kids. And so for me, masculinity is very much tied to my own identity as a father. Mm-hmm. And what I have found is inside of that dynamic, the domestic space is when questions of masculinity have emerged for me in the most serious way. Hmm. Not because of of bigger questions about who washes dishes, who takes care of the kids, or who pays the bills, but the ongoing ways in which I find myself having to take on the real political dimension of the family Hmm. uh, and the ways in which I find myself caught inside of those scripts that have dominated so much of American family life. Once I began to realize how political my actions as a father were, the cleaning of the dishes, the doing of the laundry, the the caring for my children's bodies, and began to see those acts not, not merely as domestic acts that may or may not be shaped by a predominant sense of of cisgendered masculinity that I may or may not fit, right? Mm-hmm. Women's work, mm-hmm. begin to see them as political acts that reshaped the whole sense of what masculinity was for me and what it meant for me to be a man in America in this moment. The spots where I find myself kind of Usually I'll, 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 it'll happen, and then like you observe it, and you say, shit, mm-hmm. um, I don't want to be that sort of man, mm-hmm. or I don't want to be that sort of father, um, or I don't want to be that sort of partner. 
uh, in my own uh, relationship with my spouse and um, and uh, and our two kids, uh, it's usually around anger. At least in, for me, it's Absolutely. it's uh, me too. Yes. it's around bumping into. Um, this anger that just arises out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And it's like, where did that come from? Because what I'm looking for is connection mm-hmm. um, and relationship. Um, and yet um, somewhere inside of me and into the scripts that we that I have inherited from my own father, from television, from all of the things that we've talked about, um, that my reaction to stress or to um, anxiety is this anger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've watched myself, um, get angry at my kids for stupid stuff. And then how do I, um, you know, maintain that vulnerability, that softness, mm-hmm. um, that openness? Um, yeah. So I'm curious of that, how that fits for, for either of you. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is anger is the only acceptable emotion for men. Right. So like <laughs> it does, right. it makes sense that like once, like any emotion that you feel, is trained from an early age to come out as anger because that's the only one that people are like, ah, I know what that is. That's right. that's competition. That's striving for something. That's fighting about something. That's yeah. something that I recognize, you yeah. know. Um, yeah. For me, anger, like personally, anger is like a scary thing for me, even my own anger. And so it's like figuring out how to uh, be in conflict with somebody uh, and be angry and be okay with being angry, but recognizing that anger is always that sort of secondary emotion mm-hmm. and kind of trying to figure out what that first emotion is. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I think the vulnerability of it is stopping and saying, wait a second, I need to go deeper. And I need, mm-hmm. sometimes I need people to help me ask me questions and draw out what that deeper thing is. Yeah. yeah. Um, I resonate entirely with you, Matthew, yeah. uh, and Austin anger is and remains to be a critical issue in my own de- de- development, yeah. particularly as a father mm-hmm. and as a, and as a husband. Yeah. Um, I entirely agree that anger is such a problem for many men, precisely because it is one of the few socially acceptable forms of emotion that men are well-practiced at performing, and that's the key. It's the one we know how to do the best, Uh air quotes, right? And so it's so natural, it's so practiced, it's part of our identities. (laughs) So when I think about the fact that I get good at being angry because it's the thing that comes to me most instinctually. I think what kind of practices do I need to be engaging in the course of my own personal and spiritual life that both deform myself from moving to that default place of anger and develop the kinds of moral skills that enable me to engage in the world a fundamentally different way. (laughs) And um, that's both a systemic problem, right, Uh, in the sense that I'm not sure exactly what those practices might be, but it's also a personal one. It's one that's very much connected to my own moral will. It's something that I can do myself. So what are those practices and what kinds of emotions can we get better at expressing and performing? Empathy, compassion, Mm -hmm. other regard, Mm -hmm. self-care, humility. These are the sort of classical virtues that I think, particularly as as a Christian, I find myself asking, what are the resources that are embedded in my faith that can help me unlearn how to be angry mm-hmm. and to replace it with skills that will help me be a better father, but also to be a more healthy, wholesome, life-giving man? Mm-hmm. And that's, and then of course, that's a political question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because how to be a healthy, more wholesome, life-giving man 
has a big impact on all the relationships that I have. Mm -hmm. um, are my closest friends, people I engage on the street, um, because as we know, there's something right now and has been for a long time deeply dangerous mm -hmm. about masculinity right. that has caused untold suffering and harm mm -hmm. on people who find themselves in most vulnerable situations mm -hmm. and contexts. And so that's where I sense the, the political burden, mm -hmm. not in terms of D's and R's or left and right, but the sense of what it means to me to be a person that engages in a social and political world with some level of moral responsibility. Yeah. So it's, for me, it's all about trying to find those scripts that help me unlearn yeah. that very, very practiced pattern. Yeah. One of the places that I find the sort of antidotes to negative scripts is in queer spaces and LGBTQ plus spaces because um, so many of us have grown up being told that we are doing our gender the wrong way because gender gets all mixed up with sexuality and like <laughs> um, so I you know I have a good friend who um, is a he's a gay man he identifies as male he's cisgender um, he loves wearing uh, high-heeled shoes occasionally he just loves doing it as part of like his gender expression it doesn't take anything away from his identity as a man, but everybody else sees it as like, yeah, you're definitely fucking with stuff. Can I swear? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're definitely fucking with stuff here. And and he, um, the way that he so confidently rocks that look and doesn't let other people, uh, other people's ideas of what masculinity should mm -hmm. look like mess with his enjoyment of mm -hmm. expressing himself in a certain way, like that to me is... Uh, sort of bravery that I almost never see in cisgender guys because like mm. so like cisgender guys tend to be so afraid of the of the sort of bullying that I think we it's like you almost get inoculated by it. If you're bullied enough as a kid, you almost become inoculated yeah. to it. Right. And like, that's not to say anything good about bullying, no. but like it, once it's done to you for so long, you have to come up with a sense of self that is strong enough to weather it. Mm -hmm. And carrying that sense of self into your adulthood is can be really powerful for other people to see. And like this friend of mine who wears these shoes, like him being able to do that immediately opens up conversations with the people around him about their own feelings about their gender and like mm -hmm. how masculinity works for them. And so um, I just, I really appreciate that in queer spaces, um, we've come up with some ways to um, resist the negative scripts. Mm -hmm. um, the, the downside to that though that I see um, uh, or not to that specific thing, but a downside I see in queer spaces is that sometimes we have been bullied for ways that we express our gender and haven't been able to come up with like a solid core against it. And so we internalize that and we in turn mess with other people. So like my friend Allison Robinson, who's a, um, a trans person, trans woman, uh, she talks about how um, when you have been bullied for something, you then like you know that a certain thing is not okay, expressing your gender a certain way is not okay, and then out of your concern for other people in a space, you will sometimes police them about the same thing because mm. you're like, oh, I got bullied for that, another person could get bullied for that, and I'm in proximity to that person, yeah. and that could be dangerous. So like we end up policing each other sometimes in ways that um, that aren't helpful because we are all sort of afraid of this outside, you know, big brother sense of you're doing your gender wrong, you know? Yeah, I think cl clothing's an interesting yeah. kind of example, like a, uh, just a space in which, um, I think probably I was 
the most uh, I became first aware of that performative aspect mm-hmm. of at least my masculinity when you start to make choices about mm-hmm. you know I mean like as a kid you dress what you dress whatever your parents put you in but then as a teenager you can start to make choices about um, what you want to wear mm-hmm. and what what clothing reflects who you are mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, I when when I was growing up it was metrosexual was kind of the like <laughs> right. right that was the like that which was is the, like men are so fragile that they can't even just <laughs> like take care of themselves well and still be male and masculine like we got to come up with a whole nother word a whole nother word for it you know but but it but it was kind of this invitation um to queer the lines of um of standard macho Mm -hmm. masculinity Mm -hmm. yeah so clothing is so public Mm -hmm. right and and there's so many choices that go with clothing Mm -hmm. that i think it really speaks to this broadly performative characteristic Mm -hmm. of gender um, but also the ways in which masculinity is deeply public mm-hmm. and and therefore uh, regulated that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And the way that, and this goes back to my earlier comment about relationships, particularly friendships with other men, the ways yeah. in which men regulate each other's mm-hmm. way of being in the world, that even clothing becomes very, very similar. Groups of three or four guys you see together are dressing incredibly similar, whether it's pocket right. squares and, and, right. and tie bars, right. or whether it's sweatpants and Nike Jordans yep. and Timberwolves hats, mm-hmm. right? And so I think, man, one of the things that, that when I think about how political my masculinity is, it's one of those things. In what, what ways am I opening up space for men in my life mm-hmm. to, to dress themselves in accordance to their own sense of how they want to be masculine or not mm-hmm. in the world. Uh, and this becomes one of the ways in which I can really take on the inherent toxicity inside of the own masculinity that I've re- received, mm-hmm. which is for the sake of my own anxiety, mm-hmm. right? I have, to, I have to police and regulate right. and use all kinds of techniques of shame mm-hmm. in order to, to make sure that happens. Right. And of course, Traditional American masculinity is really, really good at using power and shame to regulate yeah. uh, behavior. Mm-hmm. Right? It's yeah. one of the ways in which we maintain our maintain power for yeah. for thousands of years. Um, so, yeah, I think what 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 are the kind of practices that male friendships can, can mm-hmm. begin to engage in that open up space for for that to vary um, person to person? Yeah, I think one of the things that we haven't like named specifically is the fact that masculinity is. Uh, seen always in opposition to femininity and that Mm -hmm. femininity is bad and like to be and to like what you're afraid of is being seen as feminine when you are not masculine enough and so like I, I feel like part of what we have to do is not just find ways to be better about masculinity, we have to find ways to dismantle the idea that being feminine is the wrong, bad, you know, other side of things. Um, And so it's not just about making masculinity better. It's about, um, I I, I was going to say like blurring the lines, but that's not quite what I mean. I think it's it's about lifting up femininity and uh, the experience of people outside of the binary gender system as equal to masculinity. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 This is why I think feminism becomes step one for thinking about how to dismantle toxic masculinity, masculinity, 
we can go straight to the feminist tradition mm -hmm. and feminist practices of consciousness raising, mm -hmm. of community, of connecting and sharing experiences, creating alternative systems. Uh, we can go straight to them for a whole set of examples mm -hmm. of how to take on this question. And they offer some of the most important gender analysis for us to do this. Mm -hmm. The most important categories come out of, of the really hard work that feminists and queer feminists particularly mm -hmm. have done over the last 15 to 20 years to, to help us all think differently about, not only about gender, but gender performance mm -hmm. and, and the way that shapes public life and sexuality alike. Uh, I think one of the places that, that at least where I learned masculinity, masculine performance, masculine identity, masculine um, understanding uh, was from my father, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, yes. um, uh, you know, you see the performative aspects of it, but, but there was a sense of identifying myself against other men mm. based on, you know, like inheriting my father's politics, for example. Mm. Uh, like one example of it was that I, I wore an NRA belt buckle uh, in high school because my dad was this like, I mean, he's, he still is. He's a police officer. He, he owns a bunch of guns and it was just like part of who we are. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying that on. I mean, it's like trying on your dad's shoes, you mm -hmm. know. I was trying on his belt buckle literally and figuratively yeah. of what does it mean to, to try on this politics, mm -hmm. this kind of Wild West. I grew up in Northern California, so this kind of Wild West politics um, of um, there's you know there's that libertarian do do whatever you want, mm -hmm. uh, but also this kind of macho uh, we're defending ourselves against the wilderness and we need our weapons um, sort of uh, ideology and 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 it was it was provocative you know <laughs> when I was in high school like it wasn't it wasn't cool to be an NRA kid in Northern California, <laughs> uh, but uh, um, but it was provocative and it got attention and. Um, uh, but I think, but I'm, I'm curious, where are the other places that you've um, tried on your dad's belt buckle or mm. shoes um, in, in positive or negative ways? Mm. Yeah, so I agree. My own, I learned how to, I learned masculinity from my father, um, most certainly. But I think also um, male youth pastors were also an yeah. incredibly influential, male pastors were yeah. incredibly influential. Um, model and perspective, the both explicit and implicit messages I got about what it meant to be not only a man, but a faithful Christian man, mm -hmm. I got from them. My dad also, um, also comes into his world with a considerable level of anger. And so I learned that from my father. Mm -hmm. um, and and one of the most devastating, heartbreaking moments in my own domestic life were when I find myself reacting to my children and to my wife in ways that are shockingly similar to my father. Mm. Uh, and those moments have been some of the most difficult ones, but also some of the most life-giving and, and transformative ones mm. because I always ask myself, well, what am I doing next? Like, like, how, like how will I do this better? Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I think there's, there's a certain way in which I'm, I'm respecting and honoring his his fragility, mm -hmm. his own vulnerability, um, and and 
by recognizing that it's in me too, which actually has helped me a lot in my relationship with my father. Being a father has made my relationship with my father so much better because I'm able to understand a bit more about the real challenges that come with, not only with parenting, but also 15 year long marriage and two children and the, the kind of weight that brings. Um, and so there's a sense of compassion and healing that emerges from that too, mm. that allows me to, to be a better son and to learn and bring those lessons back to my own children, who I, the primary way in which I find myself responding to sort of my NRA belt buckle, <laughs> right, mm -hmm. is this choice that I will apologize to my children. Yeah. And so in moments when I find myself getting angry mm. in ways that feel, um, uneasily familiar. Mm. Uh, I, I try to make a point of apologizing so that they, they know and get to experience their father's vulnerability and fragility, his willingness to admit uh, mistakes yeah. and to learn from them, which hope, hopefully will become a model for them, but they too can come to me with their questions and their concerns and their mistakes and they will they will be they will be greeted with understanding and compassion because they know that I myself um, am far from perfect because they've experienced it themselves, right? Mm. Yeah, I think um, as you're as you're saying that, one of the things that immediately popped up in my mind when we talk about having other role models outside our dads for masculinity is how easy it is for men to look and find role models in places of power like pastors and youth ministers, whereas women and people of other genders don't get that as much of the time. And so it's like, it's frustrating to me that it's like, oh man, I wish that was the case for many people who didn't have, maybe if you didn't grow up with a, um, a parent at home that you felt like you could look up to and learn from, that you could get that somewhere else. And, and for men, it's easier than for other folks. Um, I think for me, the, um, the, the sort of script that I got from my family is very much like a bootstrapping sort of, <laughs> uh, way of living. Like my, my grandfather, my dad's dad, uh, didn't graduate from high school, dropped out of high school, became a long distance trucker, started a trucking business mm -hmm. that my dad became a trucker after him. And like, it was very, um, uh, then my dad sort of started his own business based on his trucking experience. And so it's always sort of the, this legacy of like, you are going to, your kids are going to, you're going to make sure your kids can do better than you did, you know? And like, um, but you're always bootstrapping yourself up. You're always, uh, you're not relying on other people. You're kind of doing your own thing. You're starting your own thing. You're beholden to no one. Like that's sort of the, the script around what it means to be a man. And like, that's what you do to provide for your family. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I think that's definitely something that I internalized as somebody who, like, as a kid, I thought I was going to grow up to be my dad and be like my dad. And then when I grew up and everybody was like, well, you're a girl, it's going to be different. I was like, wait, what? Like, that was a complete surprise to me. So I think that was a script that I sort of took on from an early age. And it's in some way is is still how I feel about, um, interestingly, as I say this out loud, I realized that... Um, it's something that I hold myself to. Like, I feel like I shouldn't ask for other people for help. I feel like I should bootstrap myself up and do what I need to do, but I don't apply that script to anybody else. Like, I don't think that's a good script, but I still hold myself to it, which mm. is unhealthy. Mm. Um, I think the, the, the negative script that I got, um, that I remember very clearly, I remember 
my dad was, I grew up in the evangelical church and my dad was part of Promise Keepers. And um, I remember he came home from a conference one weekend and we were taught, I don't even remember where this conversation came from, but we were talking about like life priorities. And my dad was like, here's how this works. As the head of the family and as the man, my priority is first, like the center of my priority is my relationship with God. Secondarily, it's my relationship with your mother. Third, it's my relationship with you kids. And my feeling in that moment was just like, oh my gosh, I don't matter to my dad. Mm, like yes. I'm like so far down the list of priorities, yep. who cares? Mm. Um, and that was such a, that like that moment of like, this is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be the head of the family. I remember thinking at the time, like that's bullshit. Like I hate this. Mm. Um, and kind of saying like, that's never going to be the way it is in my family when I grow up. I'm never going to rank people by order of importance. Um, <laughs> and so like trying to figure out how to do that inside um, a Christianity that teaches, like literally you go to seminars and learn this stuff, that's that's tough to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I grew up evangelical too, so um, all of this resonates. You mm-hmm. know, I the first book that I ever read as like a teenager, like a Christian book, like I, because it was like we read it as a Bible study, mm-hmm. was I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Of course, the um, classic. Yes, remember, yeah, a, a classic, you know, just a, you know, <laughs> but that classic in yeah. Christian literature. Yep. But Matthew, Matthew, <laughs> Joshua has now recounted, re- recanted everything. Has he and really? so the damage is right. now over. You're right, the damage right. doesn't matter anymore. He, he, yes. he pulled all the copies from the shelves and sound, and so now... The, the generation uh, of oh, impact he had on evangelical man. kids, you know, is now, you know, oh, now, wiped uh, clean. T- for. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly right. He even got his publisher not to print any more copies. Oh, we wow. should feel sorry for Joshua. Yeah, we should. Yeah. We, we and him He's giving that. up so much money. Yeah, <laughs> and social I capital. Hope it's yeah. not any more money. <laughs> Anyway, what were you saying about you? No, no, but that's it. No, no need to apologize because that's it, right? I mean, whether it's um, the, uh, oh, what's that book, Etheridge? um, And that's the one that still sounds wild at heart. Or the sister version, Captivating. Yeah. Captivating. Every man's battle. Every man's battle. And there's like so many of those. It's like the chicken soup franchise at this point. Right, (laughs) right. Um, But all all of these consistent, um, patrolling, controlling mm-hmm. messages um, that, like, you know, it's like it's a pressure cooker. No wonder there's this anger issue mm-hmm. in evangelical Christian Christian masculinity. We have put so much pressure um, onto uh, the exact performance. Um, from generation to generation. I mean, Mark Driscoll's doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like he left his church and he's doing, and and he, you know, fell from grace and yet he started a brand new church in Arizona. Like, yeah. And it's like, blowing up. And yeah. it's blowing yeah. up again. Like, I mean, how, how do these things persist? Um, and we are a stone's throw right now sitting at Central Lutheran Church from John Piper's mm-hmm. throne down the road at Bethlehem Baptist mm-hmm. and this kind of resurgence of um, complementarianism. Mm-hmm. So um, so I guess, uh, you know, I'd be curious just to dig a little bit deeper about what what have you inherited from, from Christianity uh, that you... Uh, are pushing against. I mean, like, you know, in some sense, like 
I'm trying on a different sort of belt buckle and like, <laughs> you know, being provocative. But, but in another sense of, of how are you intentionally, um, Austin, this was your question earlier, how are you intentionally kind of pushing against some of that in, in your lives? You mentioned three major cultural moments yeah. in evangelical treatments of masculinity that I think were significant for three of us, but then also yeah. millions of other mm-hmm. men. Um, like Austin, I grew up in the evangelical community, was homeschooled my entire life. Mm-hmm. And so I was, my father went to Promise Keepers mm-hmm. all the time. I remember uh, going to Promise Keepers by myself for the first time. Mm-hmm. I was newly married, maybe a year and a half, right out of Bible college, had gone straight to seminary, got married in between, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I mean, I was, I was, I was the golden boy. I was yeah. doing everything. You were doing it right. I was doing it all <laughs> right. right, right? And I walked away from Promise Keepers. I never, I'll never forget the feeling. I was with another good friend, and we both walked out and just wept mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the promise was entirely empty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it simply it did not resonate in the ways that we thought it would mm-hmm. as young men early in marriages, both of us struggling inside them, mm-hmm. trying to make sense of what the promise was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, our fathers, for some reason, heard it, uh, and it resonated with them, mm-hmm. uh, but, it didn't, but it didn't for, for me. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was a key moment. I remember it mm-hmm. so well, because it was a key moment where I really began to question mm-hmm. uh, this inheritance, because mm-hmm. it simply did not resonate with the kinds of questions I found myself asking mm-hmm. about what it meant to be a faithful husband uh, in a world uh, where uh, the, nothing felt whole mm-hmm. and nothing felt quite right. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the major questions that I think was embedded inside of that is that all three of those major cultural moments are all about sex, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Right. right. That, that, that's the dominant thing. When you pull all those three right. things together, wild at heart, every man's battle, promise keepers, sex and sexuality reside mm-hmm. at the very, very core of that. And I think that, that becomes an important thing to, yeah. to state because yeah, yeah. I think part of, what, part of what, what generates the kind of interest that mm-hmm. folks like Mark Driscoll and others is the fact that he offers them something constructive to do with this big question yeah. of sex. And I think it becomes increasingly more difficult, particularly for progressive communities of faith who want to be sex positive to know how to address this broader question. Mm-hmm. And I think it's directly tied to this question about masculinity and how and how we mess with a system that has toxified, that's not a word, that's made sex toxic because yeah. of the definition of masculinity that fuels it. Because it's really it's really about virility, right? Yes. I think I it's mean, really about power. Yeah. I think, I mean, like to sort of sideways quote Janelle Monet, sex is power. <laughs> like <Right? laughs> and power is sex. Like you I think it's about um, the use of the use and misuse of power and the use of sex and who has control of a sexual relationship. Yeah. Like that's it's about power, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is I think why we feel so strongly about training young men to do and like have sexual relationships in certain con like uh, like obviously you've got the whole sort of other to to speak in binaries you've got the other side of this from like women's side it's like you are only allowed to express sexuality in this very specific way mm-hmm. for men 
it's broader in that essentially as long as you're in control of everything <laughs> and like and that includes yourself like as long as you are in control of the situation and the other person and yourself it's okay but it's down to control I think. but there was even this inverted sense like to get back you know I mean binaries but um but when I was growing up, there was no, like, there's there's just an assumption, right? Like, yep. homosexuality leads to yes, damnation, right? right? So yes, we're, right. we're only talking about yes. uh, about male-female right. sexuality. But there was this inverted assumption that, um, that, yes, men, you are responsible for your own bodies. Mm-hmm. But also, really, the woman's a lot more responsible for your body, too. <laughs> you know, yeah, right? Like, it's kind of weird because it's like... To slow things down, like, like, like we're going to police what you wear. Right. And we're going to make sure when we go on youth retreats that we're not being... In, we're not being too provocative right. in uh, the types of sweatpants that we're wearing, right. uh, because we don't want to provoke that uh, you know beast inside right. of the the teenage boys. But right? it, it's like it's a weird like almost double reversal yes. because it's like the women are in charge of making sure they don't tempt you, but at the same time you're in charge of making the laws that allow them to do certain right. things. So it's like a it's you're giving them you're you're saying that they have the power, right. but you're still the one deciding what right. they wear, right. you know? Like right. so it's it's right. so complicated. <laughs> have a very difficult under- time understanding what to do in the context of Me Too and Church Too. The church has not been the witness on, on faithful life-giving sexuality that it claimed to be 30 or 40 years ago right. when the primary reason why Joshua Harris kissed dating goodbye was because he and his father, Greg Harris, were deeply concerned that dating simply led to sex the kind of sex that was bad sex because it didn't serve mm-hmm. their overall sense of what it meant to be Christian in America. Speaking of church too, like the thing yeah. that I was just thinking about with church too is that they're having this new conference. Did you see they just yeah. launched this new conference Absolutely. that's like where yep. they're going to talk about church too, yep. but they're not including the founders of the church too hashtag. Are we surprised by this? <laughs> no. So here's what I want to, here's what I want to talk about. Like with, with like, how do we, uh, alter things? How do we combat yeah. these scripts in the church? Yeah. Um, so the founders of the church too hashtag, Hannah Posh and Emily Joy, right? They're both, uh, they were the ones that started the church too hashtag. They were the ones that sort of started these conversations about Me Too within church context. And the reasons why they're like kept out of this discussion now is because they're both queer women. Yep. And so like yep. to me, Absolutely. the th- one of the biggest things that we can do to combat the scripts within Christianity is listen to queer folks that are yep. talking about this stuff because yep. queer folks in a lot of times have, uh, in a lot of ways, in a lot of places have been more affected by like church sex scandals <laughs> and like, and that's been a thing that queer folks have been talking about for a really long time. And, and so I think one of the things that we can do to to sort of provide alternate scripts and provide alternate stories. Like the way that we get scripts is by hearing other people's stories, right? So we want to bring in a diversity of stories. If we keep saying like, yeah, we want to talk about church too, but we don't want to talk about the way queer folks have been affected by it, we're missing out on a whole new set of scripts that might actually resonate with people in a really powerful way. Yeah. And those are the ones that are most buried. Yeah, right. Right? And so there's a certain kind of... of moral requirement, I think, to go after those stories that have been most systemically buried Mm -hmm. and go to those communities that have have the most to lose uh, at at exposing and exposing their own 
their own narratives, but also offering their own experiences. Mm -hmm. So the way that coming out stories work is that people only, first of all, people only believe you if you can say, like, I've known since I was two. Yes. And second of all, uh, people immediately discredit you if you have any history of sexual assault because they go, ah, that's what made you gay or ah, that's what made you trans or whatever. Yep. And so if you are a queer person who is a survivor of sexual assault or sexual abuse within the church, you're dealing with just like layers upon layers of shame and people not believing you um, that it like it almost like why are we surprised that people don't want to come out and talk about this stuff because nobody believes them What are the ways that you are altering um, masculinity and what are the practices, back to your idea, um, Silas, is how are you practicing that? What, what spiritual practices, what um, physical practices has, have helped you um, step into uh, a, a better way? I think um, one thing that I found myself thinking a lot about is how I am in public how people interact with me in public. You know, I lived in Chicago for seven years, rode public transit all the time, and like man spreading is like a freaking <laughs> plague, right? And that's just one example of the, of the kinds of entitlement that men feel the public space. And using that as a, as a sort of cipher to, to see other places where man spreading is happening in public, the ways that People respond to me on sidewalks. People, people respond to me in elevators. Ways that I can physically make space for others, or ways that can create distance that might make other people feel more comfortable. Um, because my body does have meaning, mm -hmm. and my body, my voice, my public presentation, the identity that I show the world has real does real things to people in the world. It's not merely symbolic. Mm -hmm. So thinking very critically about what that looks like. Mm -hmm. um, in cases where I'm in uh, faith communities, thinking a lot about the ways in which my body in spaces of, of privilege or authority gets read, um, thinking a lot about how my body looks or feels to folks in a pulpit, and then trying to name and think that through, I think is one of the few opportunities when I've done it, it's been really impactful to sort of think about that. I think that's one thing that, that faith leaders and community leaders and, and pastors can think a lot about, particularly if you are straight, cisgendered male is to think about the ways in which your masculinity gets read in public. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, the sort of uh, gender expression or physical presentation of gender is something that I really struggle with because if I present in any way other than a uh, you know, <laughs> like uh, in outside of the approved, this is the way to look like a man, you know, script, uh, my gender identity is called into question because if somebody knows that I'm trans and then I'm suddenly not doing masculinity right, suddenly my gender identity is just like in question. So like for me, the sort of physical manifestation or representation of gender is something that I have a really hard time with. I have a hard time opening up that space to other people. Um, but when it comes to things like conversation and relationships, I feel like that's where I can um, mess with things a little bit more. Uh, I can ask people questions about their experience with gender that they have like usually never thought about. Um, <laughs> like uh, 
a lot of times when I go do education with churches um, and I do workshops on gender and gender identity, I'll ask, you know, cisgender folks of, of all, uh, you know, genders and orientations, I'll ask them, like, when was the first time that you were shamed for not, for not, you know, boys don't do that or girls don't do that? Like, what was your first memory of that? And it helps to get people thinking about, uh, about gender and about the negative stuff that they've taken in because like we can't let go of the toxic parts that we've taken in until we know that they're there. <laughs> so like I think for me it's about conversation. It's about opening up conversational space and saying like tell me about an experience and not just what happened, not just the details, not just the facts, but tell me about how you felt in that moment. Um, and a lot of guys are really afraid to go there but if I am in that space and they know that I haven't an experience of gender that is different from most people, they assume that I am more, uh, I will be more open to their alternate experience. So if I can kind of say like, tell me about how you feel, this is somehow, this is like how I felt this thing one time, you know, it, it allows for a space for people to feel their emotions and talk about their emotions um, because they expect that I will be less judgmental, which I hope I am. <laughs> Imagine what would happen if if it didn't take a trans person, right? If anybody could do that, yeah, for right. men, yeah, and anybody, yep. to articulate their own stories and narratives in ways that will help them be a better, more whole person, yeah. Imagine <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, I think part of it though is that um, in the sort of internalized homophobia and transphobia yes, that we absolutely. all have, coming out to somebody about your emotions. Um, like people like cis straight men feel more okay talking to LGBTQ people about their emotions because they're not seen as threatening because they're lower down on the social totem pole. <laughs> um, and so like, it's much harder to talk to somebody who you see as equal to you because you might think that they're judging you. Whereas if you're talking to somebody you already see as inferior, it's less intimidating. <laughs> Also, there's a dark side <laughs> to fragile confessions by men. Yep. Oh, who knew, who would have thought? <laughs> I think one of the one of the practices that I've worked to cultivate is around silence, mm -hmm. um, and that's important for me as as a clergy person. But mm -hmm. it's also just important for me as a man to um, to create enough space in my life and in my um, uh, in my body uh, to be silent mm -hmm. um, because. I mean, I'm, I'm literally paid to talk all the time, like, right? right? I mean, like, that's part of my job is to, is to teach and to preach and, um, uh, but, but to turn that off yeah. uh, frequently and often. Um, and so I, I, I practice contemplative prayer. Mm -hmm. um, I practice meditation. Um, and then I just am quiet um, in meetings and it's hard, mm -hmm. um, but to, to, to continue um, to, to be silent uh, and to listen, uh, and then when it's time to speak, to not speak of my own self, but mm -hmm. to uh, lift up someone else's voice or someone yeah. else's perspective, mm -hmm. uh, and to amplify perspectives. And I'm not an expert at it, but um, but it's something that I'm that I'm working on. Uh, and and I think that's been the most um, important practice in my life, other than just sitting on a couch in therapy, yeah, right? Like, right. I mean, I think that that's where it's all. That's that's where the that's where the the rubber hits the road, mm -hmm. but. Uh, so, yeah. I think men men shutting up as a spiritual practice is a great name for a book. Like that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, like silence is is a deeply practical mm -hmm. and political act. Mm -hmm. It both creates space 
for yourself, mm -hmm. to get out of yourself, to to think, to think, and to be. Um, the combination of those two things are not things that mm -hmm. are that come easily mm -hmm. to the traditional script of American masculinity. Mm -hmm. We're doers, we're right. rational agents, and then we go do things. Mm -hmm. We've we've built an empire mm -hmm. based upon the fact that we think carefully about something and then we do it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, this is a. I find this to be a really helpful, practical, and political way of thinking about, looking back to this former question about how are we personally working to mess the system up, mm -hmm. to create space for, altern for alternatives. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting one. And a good yeah. book idea. Yeah. yeah. Good <laughs> Shutting up a spiritual practice. I, I like it. it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Next, uh, at Fortress Press, uh, <laughs> Silas has bought the book. Yeah. <laughs> it's on tape. <laughs> 25 emails tomorrow morning. <laughs> I need these conversations. I need more of these conversations that open up space for me to be vulnerable, to acknowledge the ways that I've brought into, propped up, sustained, profited from toxic masculinity. And it's a deeply religious commitment to believe that only in our vulnerability, only in acknowledging our cracks and our scars, can we find a balm for the toxic narratives that we've ingested. I'm grateful for Silas and Austin and all who are willing to share their own brokenness so that others might see a better way to live full and authentic lives. So may this conversation spark conversations for you. Thanks for joining us. Alter Guild is hosted by Meta Herrick Carlson, Matthew Ian Fleming, and Derek Tronsgaard. With edits by Matt and Derek. You can find us online at www.alterguild.org. -E you can also find us with our robust social media presence on Facebook and Instagram at Alter Guild Podcast. So please check us out, send us a voice memo, or send us an email at alterguild at gmail.com. We hope you'll tune in next week to hear our latest episode. See you again.